This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's get into the virus, understand where we are. It is a fast-moving story, to say the least. Things changing minute to minute and certainly day by day. We're lucky to have with us Dr. Eric Toner. He is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Of course, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, you can probably guess by the name. It's supported by Mike Bloomberg. He is the founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies, as well as Bloomberg LP, the parent of this radio station. And Dr. Toner joins us on the phone. So, Dr. Toner, what's the most important thing we need to know about the virus today? Well, I think the most important thing we need to know is that the virus isn't going away. Um, more than half the state, states are seeing um, increasing cases, and, um, you know, it's still in, in every state and still in every country, so it's not going anywhere. It, we will be continuing to live with this for quite some time. Is there anything, though, about the progression? Like I, I was t- saying earlier at the top of our broadcast, uh, Dr. Toner, that I was watching kind of uh, – I was watching the evening news programs, and they were talking about the hotspot now that is Wisconsin uh, and getting right. towards you know some really um, tough situations right now of running out of space in hospitals, essentially, where we were several months ago. Can you see anything, though, as we continue to move further and further into this pandemic that – we are learning. We are learning how to treat it. We are learning how to quickly get hotspots under control or yes and no. Well, we know how to get hotspots hot under control. We've done it now multiple times. Uh, it requires that people adhere to the same guidance that we've been giving them for months, which is you need to wear masks, you need to mm. uh, maintain distance, you need to avoid indoor crowded spaces. Uh, you need to be tested. We need to contact Trace. Um, all of those things are still true, and they all still work. Um, it's it's when people don't adhere to the to that guidance that we see these outbreaks. These outbreaks don't happen randomly. They happen because people aren't adhering um, to what we know works. So wait. All right. You kind of gave us a softball there in terms of setting up what happened over the last week in terms of the president and the mm-hmm. White House. I feel like yeah. all those things you said from mass to social distancing to avoiding closed spaces, like it was like a checklist of everything the White House did wrong. Yes. Yes. I mean, it, it, it you know, the science is clear. The messages have been clear. We, we you know, we know they've worked in, in every location, not only in this country, but around the world. Um, and the White House's refusal to follow the, their own government's advice has led to this super spreading event that's been, um, you know, surrounding the president. And so once we saw the president diagnosed and we saw him go to, to Walter Reed and, and I'll set aside for a second what seemed to be conflicting information or a lack of information that we were getting 
from his doctors and leave that for another day. But from what we know of the treatment, Dr. Toner, what are we to take as sort of regular people who, you know, God forbid, if we have to deal with it personally or on behalf of a family member, what do we take away from his course of treatment? What do you take away from it as someone who really understands the various therapeutics? So he got many of the available uh, therapeutics. The only one he did not get is convalescent plasma. Um, so they used a shotgun approach in, in treating him. Um, it's not clear whether this was because he uh, wanted it or because the doctors recommended it, but nonetheless, he got it. Um, he got uh, the monoclonal antibodies from the Regeneron Corporation. Um, that is something that is not available to uh, the rest of us, it is not yet um, licensed or authorized. He got um, steroids, dexamethasone, which is readily available. Um, he got remdesivir, which is antiviral, which is also pretty widely available for hospitalized patients. Um, so many of the things that he got are things that uh, the rest of us could get. Um, the one that stands out is the uh, Regeneron monoclonal antibody, uh, which is not so if if he was your patient, we, we've talked a lot about this, Dr. Toner, that, you know, executive medicine, if you're an executive and have access, I mean, he has access to the best health care in the world, understandably, and we do want that for our leaders, right? Um, but I do wonder mm-hmm. if you were his doctor, would you have done the same thing, a shotgun approach? And I do also wonder, is that what it was? Or can we read something into the case of COVID-19 that he had? And we just have about a minute and then we'll do some news and come back. Yeah, it's it's hard to know because we don't have the details yeah. um, of his case. So it's hard to know. Um, yeah, yeah, it would be total speculation at this point for me to comment on that. But would you do the same, the same thing in terms of a shotgun approach? If you had a CEO who came to you and said, listen, this is what I've got, you know, would you have done the same thing, to be fair? Yeah, to be fair, I would have given him everything that I thought was appropriate. And, you know, some of the things that he got were, were clearly appropriate. And some of them were, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. So um, it, it's hard to know without without actually having seen, examined him, seen his CAT scan, seeing his lab results. It's a little hard to know. Dr. Eric Toner, senior, senior scholar with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and a senior scientist in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He's an internist and emergency physician, and his primary areas of interest are health care, preparedness for catastrophic events, so like pandemic influenza, so perfect person to be talking to. Of course, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, uh, and he's with us from Cape Cod. So, Dr. Toner, how do you see the way forward? Um, obviously, it's a vaccine, I guess. Obviously, it's treatments for those who still get the virus, because here I'm looking at a day where New York, New Jersey recorded the most new virus cases cases since mid-May. So we're going to be dealing with this again. As you said at the top, you know, the virus is still with us. So how do you see the way forward? How do you see it playing out into 2021? I think what we'll be seeing is um, what I call choppy seas. We'll be seeing um increasing cases here and there they'll go up a bit then people will start adhering to the guidelines better there'll, there'll be some further temporary restrictions the cases will get better so as they go up and down in one location they'll be going up and down in another location 
moving around, so it'll, it'll be a chop. It'll yeah. be. Um, I, I don't think there'll be a giant nationwide spike. I think we'll continue to see, um, you know, hundreds or thousands of local epidemics, um, each one lasting a, a month or two. Um, so I think this will continue um, well into next year. And hopefully we'll have a vaccine sometime in the winter, uh, but it'll take several months um, before we can distribute that vaccine and administer it to, um, you know, most of the population, which is what we need to do in order to get the uh, pandemic under control. And the, do, you, do you have real confidence that the first vaccine that comes out that gets approved, it's going to be safe? You have confidence in that and our system that's currently in place? Yeah, I, I am reasonably confident that, um, that the career scientists in the FDA won't uh, uh, get authorized the use of uh, an unsafe uh, vaccine. So I am I am reasonably confident, and I think if you know if they if they indicate that it's safe and effective, then I would be willing to get the vaccine and recommend the vaccine. I think there are probably political pressures, at least. Uh, political rhetoric um, on the FDA. I hope that they can resist that and just stick to the science. And Dr. Turner, speaking of science and, and politics, it feels like we're getting ever used to the notion of emergency use authorizations. And, you know, we heard about that from Eli Lilly. We've got more headlines today. Uh, a lot of these stemming candidly from the treatment of the president. It seems like that was at least a catalyst. Obviously, emergency that it's built into the it's built into the term this is not the normal course of business how much should we worry how much do you as someone who knows a lot about this worry about the fact that maybe we're moving too fast with some of these therapeutics and uh potential treatments well the 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 mechanism of emergency authorization was never intended for uh, a, a drug that had not gone through uh, complete uh, clinical trials. It was intended to allow the use of a drug or a vaccine that had completed all the trials, but was waiting for the bureaucracy to catch up. Because once once the trials are completed and they're and they show a good effect and the and the drug is safe, it takes the FDA typically three, four, five months to do all the paperwork and to get the license out. So. Um, this was a way to cut off those several months at the end. It was never intended to be utilized for a drug or a vaccine that had not gone through, you know, full clinical trials. So um, I would be concerned about trying to get emergency use authorization for a therapeutic that is still only partial, part of the way through clinical trials. Can I ask you a quick question, 30 seconds, just because I had a, a viewer who's listening to our conversation, this whole idea of what the president said about Regeneron and how it helped him and to provide it free to all Americans, is that something realistic and that we should expect? And unfortunately, just got about 30 seconds here. It's totally unrealistic and it won't happen. Um, it's, it's not at all clear that, that, that the Regeneron product helped the president. Um, it's going to be a very expensive drug. It would be incredibly expensive to provide it to all Americans, and it's not. And it's, you know, it's not clear that, that even that it's that helpful, but we don't know that yet. 
Thank you so much for answering that. I really appreciate that because I know everybody really um, appreciates everybody over at John Hopkins in terms of uh, what they know about the virus, and that includes Dr. Eric Toner. Um, thank you so much. Senior Scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, really great conversation. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. So this week's cover story in the magazine, they are the remarks, and they're written by um, Robert Langreth, who is healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, who earlier, you might remember, this year wrote another cover story, which was about Gilead and its, dr- uh, its drug remdesivir, which we just talked about on air. This week, he reports about what has been one of our top stories, safe to say, over the past week, about how a White House COVID outbreak is America's pandemic failure in microcosm. So let's bring in uh, Rob on the phone in New Jersey, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Jill Weber on the phone in Massachusetts. I, you know, safe to say, Jill, we have all been obsessed by this story, rightfully so, with the president having COVID-19 and then just watching it spread throughout the White White House and all of his associates. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to imagine um, everything basically started a week ago today yeah. when uh, Jennifer Jacobs Um, wonderful uh, DC-based White House uh, reporter for Bloomberg News actually broke that Hope Hicks had it, had tested positive. And then, um, you know, basically a bunch of chaos started to ensue. And, you know, within a couple hours, um, uh, we had a positive confirmation that uh, President Trump had tested positive. And then we just started to watch more and more uh, people close to the president come down. Um, And so we turned to Bob because, you know, there's a political story there, to be sure. But, you know, the one that really stood out to us was this, uh, the the health side of it, right? And the science side of it and the disease side of it. And all of those things are things that Bob knows um, incredibly well. And, uh, you know, this disease, as he points out in this remarks, makes no exception of anybody. It does not care what your stature is, like what, what what, what country you're president of. It is just ruthless and relentless. Um, and I think we've learned a little bit along the way. And, and Bob, like, I, I wouldn't mind actually just kind of opening up with that question. Like, what did, what did you learn um, over the past week about COVID? Well, I mean, it just it emphasizes just very clearly how, how infectious and how easily this spreads and how tricky a virus this is. Because what happens is, is that people are very contagious often a couple days before they get any, any symptoms. That's one of the peak contagious periods. So a lot of the spread occurs before people have symptoms, symptoms at all. And that is may, and that, that may, may be something that happened in the White House. And that's, you know, different from uh, some other diseases like SARS or most of the spread occurred when people had symptoms. So what the White House did, and this is kind of emblematic of the whole way uh, the administration has approached this pandemic, they kind of relied on kind of a single silver bullet uh, quick fix, or relying on a, a kind of an Abbott Laboratories rapid test, uh, which is a perfectly good test, uh, but if you use it correctly, but it's really supposed to be used for people with symptoms to confirm a diagnosis and get them, isolate them as soon as possible. It's not supposed to be used as the sole line of defense to, you know, to keep, to allow you to do crowded events without masking and social distancing, and that's what the White House is doing again and again, and, and the problem with that strategy, you get one case slips through, one false, po- false negative, and you have a super spreader event, and that's sure what appears to have happened. 
Yeah, and Bob, I mean, it, it really is amazing because I feel like all of us, even those of us who you know aren't president or don't work at the White House, have been putting maybe too much emphasis or too much hope on this idea of like, well, what if I could just get a rapid test and then I could go to work or then I could go to a game or then I could get on a plane or whatever it is. It's trickier than that, right? Right. So the tests are very good and they're useful. Uh, and they're, they are part of the you know part of the strategy, but they're not like a, you know a, a solution for everything just in isolation because they're just a moment of time. And what will happen is you get infected with the coronavirus, and then there's an incubation period. Not much is happening, and so you've been infected. There's a tiny bit of virus and starting to grow and grow, and you don't test positive. You know. Uh, you know, for several days necessarily. And, you know, so you could have a rapid test in the morning. It says you're negative, but you could be infecting people in the afternoon, and then you're infecting a bunch of people, and then like a day or so later the test turns positive, but it's too late. Bob, we learned a little bit about um, how a, a, a certain course of treatments can go if um, you're the president of the United States, I suppose. Uh, what what are doctors and and others um, scientists, uh, people in pharma? What, what what are people saying about sort of the course of treatments that uh, President Trump was put on? Because that's not something that uh, the rest of us probably have access to. Right. I mean, he may have been like the only one of the only people in the world to get this kind of combination of three treatments, including this one totally experimental one from Regeneron. Uh, you know, in such a rapid rapid time frame. He got this on a, quote, compassionate use basis. He got this experimental antibody cocktail from Regeneron, of which they have, you know, they're applying for authorization, but they have, you know, very few doses of. So most people couldn't get that. And then he quickly you know, was moved to, uh, airlifted via the White House helicopters to Walter Reed Medical Center, uh, where he got remdesivir, which is a standard uh, hospital treatment. That's the Gilead drug, drug we wrote a cover story on before. And he, you know, got that right away. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, after he, he, you know, he was having some you know, breathing difficulties on Friday. And then, uh, like the next day, they put him on this steroid, dexamethasone, and uh, after he had another bout of breathing difficulty. And that is a drug uh, that's basically mostly uh, usually used for severe cases, uh, which, you know, suggests to a lot to doctors and some people that, you know, the, the, the White House doctors may have been much more worried about Trump than they've, you know, let on, the fact that they put him on this third drug that's really for severe cases. You know, what's interesting, um, Bob, we just had on a, a, a doctor, Dr. Eric Toner from Johns Hopkins, and we asked him about Regeneron specifically. And first of all, he said it was like a shotgun approach that they did with the president. And he said, to be fair, if he had an executive, senior executive, he probably would have done the same thing. But that Regeneron, you know, a listener said, well, wait a minute, the president said he's going to make it available to everybody, make it free. And Dr. Toner said to us, that's not really possible. <laughs> it's just not going to work that way. It's expensive. That's not yeah. possible. So you do wonder about here you have the president of the White House, right, that's supposed to be setting the tone, you know, um, setting kind of the national plan, and yet we keep hearing conflicting things. Well, right. So let me give you some context. The Regeneron drug, they've said for this month, October, they have like 50,000 total doses available of that drug. Now, that may sound like a lot on the surface, but there are 50,000, like roughly 50,000 cases a day being reported in the U.S. And even if you say, you know, maybe only five or 10,000 of those cases are higher risk cases than your older patients or sicker patients, still there's very little supply of the Regeneron drug. And even if it gets an authorization, you know, people, you know, there's a tiny, tiny supply. It's not like, it's not true that everyone will be able to get it. Absolutely not true. 
But it's but it's also just like as you get to your story that what we're seeing in the White House, what played out, is pretty much you know an explanation of why we never got the pandemic under control in the United States. So it's a really, really thoughtful read. And certainly in the context of the last week, um, something that everybody should definitely check out. Bob Langreth, thank you so much. Uh, Incredible reporting when it comes to COVID-19. Healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New Jersey. And our thanks always to Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. I mean, they have been the magazine and those cover stories, especially when on the virus, just spot on. Well, and this one is so timely. Mm -hmm. And as you say, just so rich with context and really important context right now. We're trying to figure all this out. Check that out on Bloomberg.com, on the terminal, and in the upcoming edition of the magazine. It's the cover. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's do a little Business Week economics now. And really, no story, I think, is bigger to the economy than the ongoing negotiations. And by ongoing, I mean months and months now between Democrats and Republicans over a new stimulus package. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she caught up with our own David Weston earlier today about the state of those negotiations and working with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. He understands the challenges. We have a difference of money in certain places, but the difference in language is also something that we can, I believe, we can resolve. It will take compromise, but that's what a negotiation is about. So I have confidence uh, in the secretary. I think the president, I have confidence that the president does too. All right. So, of course, uh, U.S. Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, speaking earlier to David Weston of... uh, Bloomberg politics here on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. I sort of, I sort of feel like if it's like if you could just insert, you know, if uh, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, like if if confidence was candy and nuts, we'd all have a Merry Christmas or at least a Phase Four stimulus. Like it it's would, kind of bananas, it's to a, be honest. It's amazing, and we've talked about this with some of our guests that here we are, just a few weeks out from an election. Like this would be a no-brainer, right? For polit, you know, for certainly the president, and uh, I would think Republicans in Congress would want to get it. Done. So let's see what our next guest has to say about all of this. In today's Business Week Economics, we welcome back Lindsay Piegza, Chief Economist at Stiefel uh, Financial. She's on the phone from Chicago. So, Lindsay, isn't it kind of mind boggling? Like, it's the economy, stupid. We know that that's what matters when it comes to elections. And, you know, putting the virus aside, you would think at this point, well, virus related, that you would want to get another round of stimulus just ahead of the election. Well, it's interesting, too, because both the Republicans and Democrats concur uh, with the chairman's statements from the Federal Reserve that we heard with mm-hmm. pleas for additional spending. And both sides agree that additional funding is needed for the economy. Also, with the election, as you mentioned, upcoming, neither side wants to be seen as the obstructionist party. So it really boggles the mind why we can't come together and reach some sort of negotiation. Now, I realize that there's sizable differences uh, over the details uh, of the report, but, or excuse me, of, of the proposed legislation, but that simply means that we need to find a compromise that neither side is overly pleased with. So for the Democrats, maybe something on a smaller scale than they would prefer would be better than nothing. And for Republicans, at this point, worried about out-of-control spending with, with debt to GDP already set to rise over 100%, honestly, what's another trillion among friends which at, is, at this point? Which so, is what Jay Powell was like, if we overdo it, all right, so what? It's better than underdoing it at this point, right? 
Well, that's exactly his point. The recovery is faster and stronger than expected, but, and he inserted this big but, uh, the economy will falter if we don't see further support. And right now, as we know, the Fed is essentially running at full uh, full throttle. So the, the focus and the pressure has shifted to the federal government. The chairman essentially handing off that proverbial baton, saying, look, now it's up to the federal government to step in and provide that additional aid needed to supplement growth and fuel this recovery beyond just the past couple of months. And so, Lindsay, if you were making the case to this intransigent Congress, uh, what data would you point, like, what would you sort of put down on the table and say, look at this, either when it comes to unemployment or consumer sentiment or something related to the consumer? Because ultimately, those consumers, to go back to Carol's very fine point, are voters. They are their constituents. So what do we need to know about the underlying economy that maybe could help convince people to get something done? Well, I think it's all about the labor market. And certainly from a glass half full perspective, we have taken sizable steps in terms of putting Americans back to work. But we're still talking about 11 million Americans out of work some 12 million reliant on federal unemployment assistance. And even though the unemployment rate has now fallen below 8%, which is great from that near 15% peak, we're still talking about a very elevated level relative to where we were going into the start of the year, going into the uh, the pandemic. So I, I don't think we need to look much beyond the labor market data to really say, yes, we've taken steps in the right direction, but we are far from out of the woods. And we do need, at this point, some additional uh, artificial support for the economy until we have a meaningful way to separate the healthy from the sick. Remember, this is not a market crisis. This was a health crisis. So we really need to look at this from a longer-term health perspective. And again, until we have that vaccine or some meaningful way to separate the healthy and the sick, we're going to have to rely on artificial support. Well, you know, and I'm going to say, going back to Dr. Eric Toner, who we talked to at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security at uh, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, you know, said the virus is still not over. It's still with us, you know. And while we're learning some things in terms of how to contain it once we see um, certainly, you know, growth spurts, uh, in various point, you know, places around the country or even around the world. But nonetheless, it's with us, and he anticipates it's going to be with us you know, well into 2021. So having said that, you know, Lindsay, if we don't get some kind of another round of stimulus, um, what's the worst-case scenario here? Well, I think even with a second round of stimulus, some sort of middle ground around a trillion dollars in addition to the three trillion already spent, uh, we are anticipating a second round resurgence of the virus as we enter into colder fall and winter weather, which is likely to undermine the recovery. So, yes, we do expect a nice 30, uh, excuse me, a 20 percent bounce in the second quarter. But growth is likely to slow significantly going into the end of the year, potentially falling back into negative territory. And as we turn the corner into 2021, likely to remain very very anemic for quite some time. So the picture, again, is is very grim still at this point. And stimulus can help that. But even with an additional trillion in federal spending, it's very unlikely that we see pre-pandemic growth levels for quite some time. Right. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you for the context. As always, Lindsay Piegza is chief economist for Stiefel Financial. She joined us on the phone from Chicago. I have to say, Carol, and you and I have been watching politics and business for a long time, mm-hmm. and I am a little puzzled by this. I really thought they would get something done. I thought Mnuchin and, and Pelosi, who have had a pretty good vibe going through all of this, would figure something out. Yeah. Um, 
but they I'm haven't. And, and and by the way, they haven't come close. Like th- this is not like oh, we just got to get over the line. They're nowhere close by all accounts. I am baffled. Like yeah. I would have thought this would have been done a election while ago. year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just so I, I I just don't understand. And I really feel for a lot of Americans and small businesses and other businesses that are having a tough time right now. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. The story of the day on Wall Street. It is clear. Morgan Stanley, uh, James Gorman, going hunting again. I God. mean, pretty amazing. I mean, I'm stealing just directly um, from our next guest in terms of framing this story. Well, and it's interesting. It was a big deal, $7 billion uh, for Eaton Vance, second major acquisition by James Gorman this year. And listen, this is moving Morgan Stanley increasingly into the business of money management. And it's a different path than what we're seeing on the rest of Wall Street. I, I can't remember whether it's in the story or I heard from somebody earlier that people think of Goldman and some others that are kind of, you know, the ones to watch and are recreating Wall Street. And then everybody's saying, nope, it's James Gorman. He's the one who's doing it. All right. Well, our guy who's going to make all the sense of the world <laughs> of this, he's going to help us, is yes. Sri Natarajan, finance reporter extraordinaire for Bloomberg. He's been all over this story. He joins us on the phone from New York City. All right, Sri, you've been talking to everybody in and out of the firm. What does this mean? What's the most important thing we need to know about this deal? Well, that Morgan Stanley, the the business that James Gorman inherited, the prestigious white shoe investment back 10 years ago, is anything but that 10 years into his tenure. What was once a purely Wall Street-focused business? Yes, they had made a few bites here and there, but those never really took off in, say, the early 2000s. But like where you were in 2010 to where Morgan Stanley is now, their dominant position in investment banking and trading, and yet it's their wealth and asset management business that will outstrip those uh, Wall Street operations. And why is that? Even before the Eaton Vance deal, about 55% of the revenue for Morgan Stanley was going to come from its wealth and asset management side because of the big bang deal they announced with E-Trade in January to bulk up their wealth operations. So no one really expected them to make such a quick bounce uh, with such a major deal, but they've gone ahead and done it. And, you know, like we say in our story today, what really propelled James Gorman to the top perch at Morgan Stanley was that stellar Smith Barney purchase did it from Citigroup that turned out to be a home run. Ten years later, these two or three acquisitions that they've announced in the last uh, 30 months or so will really leave a big mark on this firm. And that will have a big impact on how Morgan Stanley is run long after James Gordon right. is gone. Because remember, he's 62. So we're more we're talking more in swan song uh, corners here than just starting out. So I'm sure this- he'd love to hear you say that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he would not. I'm just going to say, when we talked to him, he seemed like, you know, that he had a lot of energy and a lot more left in him. Uh, was that last summer? About a year ago last summer? It was about a year, last last September, yeah, up at uh, Columbia Business School. We are going to hear from him. We should point out, we are going to yes. hear from him uh, just coming up uh, later on this hour, in fact, Carol. So, Shri, we sure, are going to hear from... Me, find, what, find me a Wall Street leader who would say that they're tired and done with <laughs> That is so true. That is, there is no reason for James Garman to, to even suggest that he's done with it. But he's, he's been there for 10 years. He really yeah. was part of the post-crisis Wall Street crew that was really rebuilding the banking industry from the wreckage of the 2008 crisis. Uh, most of his peers have faded away. Think like 
flying fine uh, things. Yeah. Mike Corbett handing over the reins. You can think about Jamie Dimon, who's been CEO for 15 years, but after a health scare now, he continues to get questions about when the succession is going to happen. Yeah. But uh, Mr. Gorman here, he seems to be busier than ever. He's not letting go of the spotlight. So I'm looking at Morgan Stanley shares, and I mean, they've been up, they've been down today, but right now they're uh, trading a little bit higher. Is this, do, do most investors say this is a smart move, another smart move by James Gorman? This makes sense, um, even in contrast to what the rest of Wall Street, the big banks are doing? Look, one, one thing is clear. It's, it's always very hard to get a read because at the end of the day, the success of an announcement like this totally depends on how the integration goes. But to James Gorman's credit, to Morgan Stanley's credit, they have done a few recent deals where they've proven that it can happen without a problem. And, and Gorman is not shy on confidence. And listen to what he told analysts on a conference call today when he says, you know, when the questions were, are you paying too much of a premium to buy Eaton Vans? And he says, people who are hanging around trying to buy great companies cheaply never get anything done. All that they manage to do is pat themselves on the back about the wisdom they have, but they never get anything done. And those who sort of buy lousy companies end up paying what eventually appears to be a lot of money that ends in tears. So he's pretty confident about that. And uh, yeah. that's certainly being projected onto the analysts and investors who are willing to give him the runway to uh, hey, prove that this is a success. Hey, Shree, just 30 seconds. We're going to hear from James Gorman. He's going to be live on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV uh, coming up at 3.40 Wall Street time. What do you want to hear or what would you be asking him just quickly? Well, I mean, in he, the key part of it now is where does it go from here? Because he's already said, I'm done with acquisition for, for the time being. We've made our bed. It's time to lie in it. So mm. how do you go to the next level? That's obviously key. And uh, it, it's really going to be a show me story from that point on. Prove that yeah. you can integrate E-Trade really well. Prove that you can integrate Eden Man's really well. And if that does happen, you have a really diversified business here that it, it's really hard to poke holes in right now. Yeah. All right. Great context. Thank you so much. And again, we will hear from James Gorman directly coming up at 3.40 Wall Street time right here on Bloomberg Radio. Sri Natarajan, finance reporter for Bloomberg. He's been all over this story. He joined us on the phone from New York City. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, it is time for our drive to the close. Let's get right to George Bory. He is the head of fixed income strategy and portfolio specialist at Wells Fargo Asset Management. He joins us on the phone from New York. All right. So, George, we got some deal making uh, going on on uh, the side of Morgan Stanley. Uh, That certainly is capturing a lot of attention. We've got a stimulus that can't get done in Washington. We've got an election that's 26 days away. From where you sit, what should we as investors be most concerned about? Well, first off, thanks for having me on the show. Very much appreciate it. Sure. Um, you know, from from our perspective, um, you know, I think the simple message, and we just heard it from Mr. Gorman, but, you know, the COVID economy you know, is in recovery mode. And I think that's the most important factor that, you know, kind of is driving sentiment. Today is clearly kind of a risk on uh, day where sort of asset prices across the board, bonds included, we're all basically up in price. 
you know, I think through a combination of, you know, optimism, as you mentioned, some deal-making, um, the economic data this week has been okay. Um, you know, it, it certainly points to an economy that's more in recovery mode than, than anything else. It's not a very even recovery, but it's a recovery nonetheless. And importantly, as you mentioned, you know, kind of the hope um, that that both fiscal and monetary support, you know, it, it may not be here immediately, but it is likely to come. So I think the market's starting to look through the election. Uh, they're comfortable with the prospect of, frank, quite frankly, either candidate winning um, on the hopes that, you know, on, on the flip side of the election, that you're going to see a meaningful stimulus package, you know, that's targeted at, at those consumers uh, that Mr. Gorman mentioned, and, and also small business. And that kind of helps propel the recovery into next year. And, and, and that's really, that is our base case right now. You know, we have a story on the Bloomberg. Uh, investors really can't get enough of high-grade corporate bonds. Um, you know, this is your world, corporate credit. How do you see it playing out, especially against, you know, that kind of economic market backdrop that you just laid out? Well, I think the biggest driver uh, in the credit markets in general, from a demand perspective, mm-hmm. is just the lack of yield. As we all know, or as I'm sure many people know, uh, you know, bond yields are very low kind of across the board. Now, they've moved up a bit. You know, 10-year yields have been on the move over the last few weeks, up about, you know, kind of, let's call it 13, 14 basis points. That's a big move in our world, but, you know, at, call it 77 basis points in total, you know, 10-year yields are, are, high, are, are hardly um, high. Uh, and are still relatively low. So there is a demand for what we would call high-quality income. And, and the, and the investment-grade corporate bond market you know, has been a place for investors to put a significant amount of money over the course of the year uh, to get that incremental, incremental income. Um, in addition to that, you know, the, the companies that tend to, to be investment-grade, while leverage has gone up, they are large cap in nature. They tend to be pretty cash generative and, and tend to have a lot of finance, financial flexibility. On top of that, the Fed you know, certainly stepped in uh, earlier this year to provide a, a big uh, sort of hand of support, if you will, you know, which really boosted the market. So it's a combination of, of, of the need for yield, which hasn't right. gone away and is unlikely to go away, but also you know, some, some, some pretty good um, support from policymakers. And again, you know, that, that underlying recovery that, that does start to help fundamentals. And so you heard Jay Powell essentially say, hey, guys, uh, Pelosi, Mnuchin, need some help here. Help a brother out. I've done everything that I was supposed to do and maybe more, more than expected. That's a direct quote, I believe, That's a direct quote. I think that's probably what he's saying, you know, when he loosens up his tie a little bit. Um, I mean, is he right? Has he essentially done, you know, his job here and it really is up to the fiscal side? Well, you know, I think it's, I think the reality is, is, you know, monetary policy has its limits. And, you know, the Fed's job is to keep the channels of credit open, to keep, um, you know, to try and improve sentiment in the market and to kind of keep the, the banking system effectively up and running. And, and I think they've done a very good job with that this year. You know, they, they acted decisively, aggressively, and with meaningful, meaningful force earlier this year. That effectively unclogged the credit markets. It got uh, investors kind of lending money again, and it got uh, companies and individuals kind of borrowing again. You know, and so from that perspective, I think they've done their job. But at some point, you know, monetary policy is not a substitute for fiscal policy. And, um, you know, when the economy is, is really in the doldrums like it has been this year because of, of COVID, you know, the, the government, you know, in 
sort of Keynesian policy, the government can step in and, and kind of offset that pullback in demand. And I, and I think really that's what, that's what Powell is, is pointing to. He is fully committed to supporting the economy uh, just about any way he can, but he can't magically create aggregate demand. That has yeah. to come from somewhere. And right now the accelerator has to come from the, from the government because, you know, private sector is still very much hurting from the impact of COVID. And so he is kind of pushing on a string, you know, at this yeah. point and, you know, looking for help from, from fiscal policymakers. Lending versus spending, what the Fed can do and then what, it, what policymakers can do. Uh, there are different uh, kind of tools that they each have. All right, uh, George, thank you so much. George Borey, he's head of fixed income strategy and portfolio specialist over at Wells Fargo Asset Management on the phone in New York City. There you have it. The lending, should... not spending tour, a.k.a. pushing on a string. <laughs> Jay Powell and the Feds. Yeah. JP and the Feds. JP and the Feds. J Pow, isn't you it? J Pow. You don't. You don't think that what he was saying is like help a brother out, Manooch. <laughs> help a brother out. Wouldn't that be great? Like you know, then the stories we could write off of that. <laughs> exactly. J you know, Pow says, "Hey, help a brother out." Nance, Jay, come on, you are killing J- me. It's not gonna happen. She's like Jay, chill, bro. It's chill. It's not going to happen. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.